at the end of the day, your North Star has to be, if we had never seen school and could imagine how we'd want to bring children from the age of four to the age of 18, what would we do? Well, hey again, everyone, and welcome back to the Modern Learners Podcast. As always, I'm Will Richardson, your host, and in this episode, I am totally excited to bring you a great interview with Pam Moran and Iris Sokol, the co-authors of just a must-read new book on education for the modern world titled Timeless Learning. And yes, this is the book I reviewed on our blog last week, and yes, this is the book we're going to be doing a book study on this fall in our Modern Learners community, and yes... I'm giving this book a great deal of love because I think it may be the best book I've ever read in terms of creating that urgent case for change, but also in laying down a narrative of how you can actually take a traditional public school system and reimagine it for modern times. I really enjoyed this book and I really enjoyed the interview, and I'm sure you're going to do so as well. As always, this episode, our 48th, is brought to you by Change School, our highly intensive and wonderful eight-week immersion into inquiry and problem-solving for leaders and others interested in reimagining schools. And our sixth Change School cohort starts this September. You can enroll right now by going to change.school. And don't forget, enrolling in Change School gets you lifetime membership in our Modern Learners community, which you'll be hearing more about in just a bit. Finally, don't forget to visit modernlearners.com for the latest on our Modern Learners Labs, which are our new face-to-face events coming to a town or city near you. And if you like our podcast, why not do what True Blue 949 did last week and head on over to iTunes and give us a review. Whoever that person is called our podcast Fresh, Courageous, and Clear-Minded Thinking. So thanks for that, True Blue, if you're listening, and I hope the rest of you will give us a little bit of your love and attention over there as well. But enough for me. Let's get on to this great hour-long conversation with Pam and Ira on their new book, Timeless Learning. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and enjoy. All right. So with any luck, I'm hoping that we're broadcasting live to the millions of you out there who have been uh, eagerly awaiting this interview with Pam Moran and Ira Sokol. Um, it is uh, great to be with you guys, and uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time this morning to chat a little bit about your awesome new book. I know that I've been writing about it and talking about it and, uh, and exchanging emails with you guys and tweets and everything else. Uh, I have to say that book, uh, I think, is going to change a lot of people's thinking in terms of what education needs to be, and uh, I'm really, really glad you guys wrote that. So uh, thanks for spending some time this morning. It's great to see you. It's Thank great you. to see you too, Will. And, and I have to tell you, as a recovering retired superintendent, clearly, <laughs> uh, you know, 31 days or 32 days past uh, retirement, I still am getting up at 3.30 and 4 in the morning. <laughs> I so, know. I saw, your, I saw your email this morning from yeah. 4. So, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And, and the thing is, I was, on, I was telling Ira, I was almost awake at that point because I didn't roll in until 2 in the morning last night from Dallas. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. You know, we're all just a little bit tired and giddy. But anyway... Just really wanted to start at the same place that I started my blog post because I, I just love that quote so much. And, and it really did make me just sit up and go, yes, finally, you know, and maybe here we are. And the quote is, you guys wrote, adults may argue about this. They do argue about it. But despite the historical victories of industrial education, the fundamental utility of school has now firmly shifted to the progressive educational ideal, what John Dewey wanted. 
And I want to start by just having you guys talk a little bit about what you think has changed. I mean, why now? Why is it finally time for us to look so much more deeply into that type of learning and that type of teaching in classrooms? What's, what's different? Well, well you, you, you probably know that you know, when I wrote my dissertation, it was a history of how the American education system came to be. And I, I, I think there's always been this, you know, back and forth push going on. I, I go all the way back to the 1830s when a writer named William Alcott was writing about what school should be. And, and he was describing what Dewey would describe later, what Postman would describe later, um, what we'd see through things. The, the two things, though, have come together now to challenge the victories of, of the industrialized education system. And, and, and this combination of both technology and choice, at, 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 and dri that's driven by the changes in the economy of the future. Um, we have seen such a dramatic shift in... in what technology means for human life and, and the idea of work um, and, and relationships in, in today's era that we've, we've fundamentally changed what people need to learn. So education was developed from between the 1850s and uh, the 1920s to feed a certain kind of second industrial era um, second industrial revolution economy that no longer exists. It's gone. And I lived in Michigan and watched <laughs> a million jobs disappear just in the automation, you know, re revolution. Right. And, and now we're, we're way beyond that. So what's happened is the needs of society have changed, but at the same but time, the same technology has offered a choice that people never had before. Kids do not need to go to school buildings to learn anymore, and parents are quickly learning that. Um, so there, there is this fundamental shift. Kids learn, as they always have, far more outside of school than they learn inside of school. But at this point, that's become obvious to everyone, and except so the people holding on in education. Right. So, Pam, yeah, go ahead, Pam. I'll just add to that, Will, that, that one thing that's really interesting to me, and, you know, and Ira and I connected very early on um, via a couple of friends in Albemarle County who were educators who said, you got to know this guy, he's a really provocative blogger out of Michigan State. And so, uh, you know, I found Ira on Twitter and, and kind of, uh, Will, you'll love this. I followed him for probably six months before we ever had a conversation because I kept thinking, I don't want to get lit up by this guy. Um, <laughs> as you know, can sometimes happen there. But, um, but the reality is that, that when we started talking and, and focusing on some of the, the areas of, of work that Albemarle was doing, that we were doing in the district where I was superintendent, that um, he was really informative in terms of looking at a historical context. When he said to me, my area of interest is finding out why we have the structures in school today that we have and figuring out where does that fit with where we are as humans today. Um, and then the other person that, that's a co-author, Chad Ratloff, had been working in a, a relatively uh, 
um, what some people might call a, a, a mill town version of Detroit in Virginia, Martinsville, that had lost all of its uh, industrial base and had one of the highest unemployment rates uh, anywhere in the United States. And, and so Chad was seeing sort of what rural uh, losses looked like at the same time Ira was seeing those losses in Michigan. Um, I describe, you know, Ira, I think pretty much the word that most people attach to him is that he's, a, he's very much a provocateur. He asks really tough questions. He pushes people's thinking. He questions, you know, why we do what we do. Chad, on the other hand, has a very much of an entrepreneurial approach to the world um, through kind of a, something that came out of the Darden School of, of Business at UVA, the idea of effectuation, that the best entrepreneurs don't just think about the end in mind product, but they think about the humans that are going to be a part of the process of building out whatever it is they're going to do. Right. So typically we're focused on humans. What I think is pretty interesting about putting those two themes together sort of a, a, a humanistic entrepreneurship, um, social entrepreneurship, and you know, sort of a provocation about the work that we're doing in education today. And then you couple that with what's interesting to me, Will, is with the rise of the smart machine age, you know, a lot of people talk about all the technology skills that kids are going to need, kids are going to need. One of the people that's really informed my thinking, and he's quoted in and out of the book, comes out of the workforce world of the Darden School of Business, and that's um, a guy by the name of Ed Hess, who's at uh, uh, Professor Emeritus at the Darden School. You know what he talks about? He talks about that what the most important things that are going to be a part of a curriculum of public education, if we're going to not just barely survive, but actually thrive, is not going to be about what kids need to learn, but it's going to be about how kids learn, and it's going to be about kids learning to take um, on their own learning in really authentic ways inside and outside of schools. And then lastly, that it's going to be sort of that social emotional context of who we are that will provide people with the greatest um, potential to thrive in a world that seems to be getting dominated by technology from knowing when, uh, you know, in our house, right. turn lights on and off and so forth. Right. So it strikes me is that, that, you know, Dewey was all about not just kids learning skills that would help them be functional in their homes and communities and work, but he was very much about the human element. And what I see is pretty interesting with the work that Ed's informed for us is that tools are just simply humans use. They've used them for, you know, as long as they've been humans. Tools are not the dominant um, narrative of what we need to be thinking about in education. Curriculum, the what to learn is not the dominant narrative. We need to be thinking about how do our kids thrive as humans? Yeah, I was thinking actually, I was on a plane the other night and I was um, thinking there's another C that I never really thought of in terms of all those 21st century skills that start with C. And I think it's coping, right? I think that we need to give kids coping skills these days. I need some coping skills when I look out into the world right now and how much it's changed and just how different it is and the, and the pace of it. Um, and, and it does speak, you started, I think, Pam, really getting to this idea of what progressive education is. And I do think that a lot of people struggle with kind of a definition of it, um, you know, as I kind of alluded to in my post. I think a lot of people hear it. In fact, I got an email from someone said, oh, my goodness, we've had progressive education forever, you know, and, and just get me off your email list because blah, 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 <laughs> literally. I mean, and that you get that type of reaction from some people. So I'm just wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about 
not only the eternal kind of themes or, or aspects of progressive education that still hold true today, but what that looks like in a really modern context, right? So um, certainly, you know, Dewey had his vision of what it looked like. I think Dewey's vision might be a little different today, given the technologies and the context that we have right now. So how do you guys kind of see progressive modern learning happening in, in schools? But, you know, what I'll, I'll go back, Will, to, you know, and it's the, sort of the reason that we title this Timeless Learning, is it is progressive education, but it has, this has never really gone out. One of the things I alluded to a guy named William Alcott, and in 1832, he wrote that no child should be asked to sit in his seat for more than five minutes at a time, and no child should go more than 20 minutes without leaving the school building. Um, and that the, perhaps one of the most important things you did in the school building was have a really um, fabulous garden surrounding it so kids could get out in the world and, and see the world and study things. And he talked about how, how it was so essential to have walls of windows so you could see outside all the time. So this is 1832. The simple fact is that what industrial education has always missed is that people need to learn how to, as you say, cope, how to work their way through their lives, how to make the world work for them. Um, you know, I always like the quote, technology is the art of manipulating the world. Um, well, that's what kids need to learn is they need to learn how to manipulate the world so they are successful. No, you know, nobody lives a life that looks like traditional school the minute they graduate. No one lives that life. So what, to me, what this kind of learning looks like in the contemporary era is all the things that Alcott talked about in 1832, but updated to the present. We talk a lot about, you know, one of the things that Pam and I developed were even design imperatives for buildings. And we talked about inside, outside, you know, kids needed to move in and out, um, uh, you know, sort of freely. We can't spend our lives being continuously paranoid about things because if we're doing our job, kids learn a level of responsibility that allows them to function independently. Right. The, what most schools present is that when you look at a traditional school, even just an elementary school, what the school is saying is that we are failing at every grade because at every grade we have to have the kids more under our control. In kindergarten, they have a lot of freedom, and then it becomes less and less and less and less and less. That means if you're thinking about what a human needs to develop in terms of skills, what any child needs to turn into an adult, the school is declaring failure simply by the way they furnish their classrooms in an elementary school. So, you know, what we're saying is if we are succeeding, kindergarten looks like the best kindergarten you can imagine, but every grade after that looks more open and free because well, that, that would mean we're winning. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that one of the really interesting things about that, and, and you know, and we use a lot of, um, a, a lot of story and, and, you know, for me, there's, there's so many, so many books out there that have been written to speak to the accountability movement around data, data, data. And we, we talk, 
oftentimes about the fact that, that American education swims in data. But the reality is there's a difference between the, uh, the numerical data that everybody has, everybody has to be accountable to, and the qualitative information, the knowledge of how children learn, understanding children at the individual level behind the numbers that, that fill up millions and millions and millions of cells in databases by the time a kid graduates. Uh, every kid's got millions of cells of data that uh, span you know, 13 years, uh, typically. That it's the authenticity and the context of understanding who people are and being able to see both the commonalities and the subtle differences or even sometimes extreme differences that allows a teacher to really be responsive to young people. My kid said to me when he got out of high school and was maybe even out of college at some point, we were talking about, because he was raised inside schools, and he said, you know, mom, I had more freedom in kindergarten than I did as a senior in high school. And I said, I never thought about that. And he said, yeah. He said, think about it. You know, if I needed to go to the bathroom, I got up and went to the bathroom. We had a bathroom, you know, right in the room. He said, if uh, the teacher, you know, uh, noticed that we were, you know, doing something and it was time to shift, some of us might shift, but if somebody was really totally focused on building and with blocks, you got to stay in the block area until you finished your structure. He said, school does nothing to sustain kids' attention. In fact, we set up structures. I mean, this is my kid talking and, you know, right. He was a really good student in school. He was like, you know, <laughs> amazingly, you know, top of the class kind of kid. But what I think about when Ira talks about failing, we tend to focus on the kids that we fail as being kids who don't graduate or who barely graduate or who graduate and they don't have a plan. You know, I say, you now if a kid walks off of our stage and they can't think about what am I going to do tomorrow? And that could be taking a gap year. It could be going to work. It could be thinking about what they're going to do in college or their, you know, our business, you know, we got kids starting up businesses, but if kids are leaving us without having any sense of future and what they are taking into the future with them, then we've really failed them too. And even the kid that's going to MIT, who's gone through the motions of doing school really well to get to MIT, but then gets there and goes, you know, I really hated all those math classes I took in high school. I really right. want to be an artist, right. you know, what I think about is that you know, we have to think about that the big picture of what we've done to kids is we've created this curriculum where we've crammed everything in that every adult, any adult thinks that kids should learn. Every legislature, every teacher that sits on a curriculum committee, we have packed the lives of children with so much information and bits and pieces of facts and, you know, t whatever you want to go there that absolutely waste their time as learners because you and I both know we knew it before all the neuro research. We know it even more now that we've got all the neuro research. If kids don't get deep experiences that mean something to them, that stimulate emotional memories, kinesthetic memories, so that they can hold on to it because verbal linguistic and analytical intelligence, uh, logical analytical intelligence, dominantly what we do in schools, the least of what kids take with them outside of schools. I talked to John Hunter, who's the World Peace Game guy, and he's in, in our, our book. Um, but John and I talked because, you know, in the World Peace Game, these kids play a simulation for six or eight weeks in which they are trying to save the world from annihilation. And John is throwing everything at them that causes them all kinds of challenges as they're playing this game, fourth graders. 
And we were taking a group of kids up to the Pentagon several years ago. And when we were uh, up there and coming back, I said, John, I want to interview about you. You're thinking about how do you assess what kids really take away from this game? And, you know, these kids had talked to four-star generals. They didn't bring in any media. These people in the Pentagon under a prior administration wanted to learn how do fourth graders approach solving world problems that are non-standard problems because they felt that maybe they could learn something from a nine-year-old. That might, mind was pretty amazing. After we left Leon Panetta's office, left all these, you know, big shots in the Pentagon on the way back, I said to John, how do you know what these kids are taking away? He said, Pam, I may not know for 20 years what the fruits of these kids playing this game is. He says, but I can tell you, when I started it 30 years ago, I now have kids showing up in Facebook, kids that are showing up that are, are out there as activists in the world. He said, so my measure is not what they did in that moment. It's what they're doing today as adults. I think that we have put so many eggs in the basket of giving all of these tests to kids, uh, living this accountability movement, which is a legacy from the cult of efficiency of 1910 and Coverly and uh, Taylor and all those guys in public and private sector, that we have deprived and robbed our children and our adults of capabilities that progressive focus out of the world of a Dewey and others would have potentially gifted our nation with. And I think that, that what we've done is that we have literally lost so much talent, so much potential, so much opportunity because we have been so deeply embedded in the first and the second and the third industrial revolutions, I'd like to think we get it right this time. And I'd like to think that it doesn't look that the work that we've been doing and others all over the country are doing, because we're not, we're not alone in this, that the reality is that if we do this right, nobody will write about this in some history book in 20 years online and say, oh, it was another fad period of progressivism. If I can just add, just that, because to me, this is a, it, what Pam is bringing up is a key thing. I, I have always said that we judge our success as educators by how many choices our children have when they turn 30. You know, that they, they should have the choice of what kind of job they want, where they want to live, what they want to do, how their relationships go. They should have all those choices, and, and that's the judgment factor. And one of the things we do in the book is to go back and try to debunk some of the, uh, the false history that's written of prior uh, progressive education movements. So, you know, if you look right now, at, and because, um, you know, people beginning with the Reagan administration started rewriting the history of the 60s and 70s to make everything look like a failure. But the simple fact is that the progressive education era that um, we know from like 1965 to 1985 uh, had a huge level of success. It is the only time in American history that by um, quantitative standards, we close the achievement gap. Uh, um, we, it, it's, the, it's the only time when we see everybody's skills seem to rise. And the people who came out of that education system from the progressive things, and, and that includes me, and I'll explain that more in a bit, but, you know, or were the people who built the internet, who, you know, drove 
the have driven the American economy and the global economy to where it is. So I look back, I always say I was an incredibly lucky child to have been, you know, sort of thrown into the most progressive sort of high school possible at the time. Um, and the success rate of whether it was my school up by New York or a number of others that, that were there, or most famously, the Parkway program in Philadelphia during that time, um, these were the most successful schools with at-risk students ever. I look back now at my, um, at my sort of alumni group, and it's not just one year, it covers a bunch of years, um, from the high school that I had, which had pretty much no rules. Um, and I look and I see people who've been everything from the United States trade representative to a a Asia, to doctors and lawyers and, um, and, you know, photographers for the New York Times, and it goes on and on and on. People are successful. But I will have to sit, point out that no one was in that high school because they were succeeding in school. Of course, that's not who goes to alternative schools. So there is a, a track, record, track record of success going way, way back for this. And one of the things that we've tried to do is to retell that historic story. Well, I, I just think it's interesting, you know, both of you, in, in, as you're talking, Pam, when you were talking about your own son, and I can say the same thing about my own kids, that they... He's a scholar athlete. Yes, that, that he did well in school, but it was the same kind of thing. He wasn't very invested in the work. And, I, and what surprises me is when I go around and I speak and I talk about my kids and I talk about my experience of having them grow up fairly disengaged from school, but still doing school well, I, I get so many people that just are shaking their heads and they come up afterwards and they tell their own stories about their own kids. And it's like, none of, no one's surprised when you talk about the fact that schools really aren't built for the type of learning that we're talking about. But yet I think a lot of people struggle then with how you get to a different place. And again, one of the quotes that I really loved from the book was when you were talking about kind of the dominant narrative that we have right now. And I think this is a powerful quote. You said, you know, this, this future is extremely uncertain. It's impossible to get our children ready for a future so uncertain. Thus, the popular idea of readiness, such as college and career readiness and future readiness, is as absurd as it is popular. Right. And, and so, I mean, that quote, I was just like, oh, yes, OK. Um, but so then talk about what is readiness now? I mean, what is it that is going to, to really help kids go out into the world? And then secondly, how do we begin to move schools there? Because I think what you've done, you know, we, in our work, we call it, you're a school that has moved from old to bold. That's how kind of we describe it, right? Um, there are other schools that are built for this type of learning. And I mean, um, you know, no disrespect or anything, but that's an easier path in many ways, you know, to, to bring these types of beliefs and pedagogies and everything into the work and construct it from there. But you guys have taken a traditional system and tried to move it down that path. So if it's not future ready, college ready, career ready, what is it ready? And how do you begin to move it to a different and, definition? And I have to laugh, Will, because if you look at our, uh, our vision, you know, our, our vision in, in the system where I just retired uh, was established in around 2004 and it came out of a, a, a the first big wave of progressive 
uh, work that took root was a project that was called Design 2004. And I, I give kudos to the former superintendent that I worked with, Kevin Castor, in the book, when he sat down with his cabinet one day and kind of pounded his hand on, a, on the desk a little bit and said something to the effect of he had just been to a, a, a institute where he got to make a movie. And he said, I want every kid in Albemarle County making a movie. And we're like, what? <laughs> and what he really meant when we unpacked it is that he was so concerned about No Child Left Behind sucking the life out of classrooms that he wanted to be sure that we didn't lose that. So we started this thing called uh, Design 2004 in 2002. I like to say that, that Albemarle County, I can say this now, that, that we, we discovered design work and made it sexy before the rest of the world did just a couple, three, four years ago. But, um, but the, the reality is that we went out to teachers and we said, put yourself in a team, come up with a project that's interdisciplinary, uses technology in some interesting way with kids, and is not assessed with a test that looks like a Virginia SOL. And that stands for standards of learning for folks in the audience. It's not what you think. Um, but the reality is that that led to the establishment by a group of teachers across the county who came together the summer after they were given money to go do these projects, kind of almost like a skunk works kind of project. Um, they came back and they were talking about what their kids were learning, what their kids had done, what the, and, and they were really focused on the level of enthusiasm from kids that emerged as a result of the projects that these teachers did. Out of that came our 12 lifelong learning competencies. And they're very broad and they hit things like kids really living a fit and healthy lifestyle. I mean- What a concept, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, really. Um, Kids uh, become learning how to use metacognitive strategies, how to think about their own th thinking and be reflective. How do you plan and conduct research? And I've often used the example of that we, we talked about in the moment that a kid graduating from high school, going into a job, buying his first car, needed to be able to be a kid who could figure out, can I afford this and what am I going to do to make sure I can, as compared to the kid who wanted to go be a chemical researcher, you know, at some point in his life, that everybody does that work. So we looked at what I would call almost the universal truths of what humans do to be successful in their homes, their communities, their lives, that, that allow them to really thrive regardless of the pathway they go down. Those 12 lifelong learning competencies have really stood the test of time with us. And we actually at some point in time said, you know, Let's shift to more of a portfolio and performance-based focus. We knew we were still going to have to do the, you know, you don't get out of the state test and even the prep that you do for them. But how do we balance this out so that we're able to show the public that our kids are doing something that is um, uniquely centered on competencies for life, not just school? So that was a, a beginning stage of our work. And we've added elements to that. Around 2012, Ira had done some work with us and, you know, we, we came back and said, you know what, on the learning S curve, you know, and I love that concept that you've got to be able to have inflection points. The folks, in, you know, that listen to this that understand both economics and uh, <laughs> engineering and understand the concept of the inflection point that you start to plateau, you've got to infuse something that gets an inflection point to move you up the curve. 
And so we said, we need to do that. And we did. We put another RFP out and we had schools across the county. And from that came what we've labeled as our seven pathways. You know, teachers said, these are the things that will change our schools in the next generation. Right. Maker-infused curriculum culture. Um, Connectivity. And connectivity not defined as, I'm going to get on a one-to-one laptop and log into some website where I get to practice math all day long or, you know, spelling. But how do our kids connect with the world? We started seeing things like the teacher whose kids were, were writing very personal narrative stories. And she wanted to have an authentic audience for them that wasn't just their little rural middle school. And she was able to connect out and invite in people that we had vetted to listen to her kids read aloud their stories and give them feedback. And she had people from, I mean, Ireland and, you know, (laughs) other parts of the country. And so you start to think about, you know, so connectivity and maker work and, you know, we couldn't land on a P word, you know, it was like some people wanted to have project-based learning and some people wanted passion-based learning and some people wanted uh, uh, problem-based learning. So we just called it P-based learning and said, you know, in the ultimate, if kids are passionate interested, you know, because there is some debate about whether you can be passionate until you're interested. But when kids start to own that learning work that is a project that is meaningful to them, all of a sudden you start to see something light up in classrooms. And we tell the stories of some of the kids in there. I called the, the young man that, that we feature in the very first chapter, Coleon, who um, has told his story very publicly in terms of the challenges he had coming out of juvenile justice, landing in Albemarle from Brooklyn, New York, um, and literally really being somebody that in most places in the United States, most people would not have even put down a small bet that he was going to graduate from high school. And he did, not because of remediation or intervention or added on more of, you know, algebra. He did it because of a daggum sound studio that he walked into and he was a musician. You know, and he started writing amazing lyrics. And the next thing you know, he's figuring out how to negotiate his way through biology and, and cell theory by writing raps about cells and, you know, and having it make sense to him through a very different mode. And so you think about, we've got those stories. I could reel out story after story after story of kids that most people would give up on, that because of a progressive contemporary focus, those kids graduated from our schools. I talked to him, he's three years out now. He's doing well. He's not, he's not at UVA, you know, but he's, he's got a job. He's got a settled life. He's still doing music. He's trying to do some classes in community college. And the reality is that he, he gifted us more than I think we gifted him. I think I learned more in his reverse mentoring of my understanding of what progressive education can do for a kid to keep them coming back to school. I mean, we had to kick him out of school, basically, you right. know? And well, and that's, that, for me, that's the emotional core of who we all as educators, that's why we come to this profession. But I think, just like Kevin said, that gets sucked out of you by the system. Right. And well, we and, you know, Will, if I, I can just say, you know, how, how do we move, how do we move people? And this is why the narrative that, all three of us and many others are trying to tell is so important. You, you have to change the questions. I, I was up in New York in May speaking to the National American Institute of Architects uh, conference, which 
you know, as I said, I sure never expected to be doing something like that when I dropped out of Pratt School of Architecture a long time ago. But there I was. And I said, when you start to design a school, and I'd say this to architects, I'd say it to superintendents, I'd say it to school boards, I'd say it to parents. When you start to design a school, stop asking how many kids have to go there. What age are the kids? What, you know, how many teachers will we have? You know, what kind of learning we want? Even that, don't ask those questions. The first question you need to ask is, what do you want our children to be? That the Coleon story um, is one example that we wanted a child to be okay. It's not necessary that everybody go to the University of Virginia or Ivy League or go to college or do whatever they want. We, step one is, can we make sure that our children are okay? But if you ask what you want children to be, you can then ask the question, if you can answer that, you can then ask the question, what do you want our children to do? And so you say that. So, you know, in my role, both in terms of, um, you know, introducing technologies, introducing space designs and things like that, people would come to me and say, oh, I'd like iPads. And I'd say, that's not a question. The question is, what do you want children to do? Right. You know, what, what are you trying to do? And it, it is in shifting the questions that we can make the progress because industrialized education has settled in so strongly that people forget the essential questions right. they need to ask. Well, and they forget the, the essence of how humans learn and have learned forever. You know, we are, we are, we learn through story, we learn through movement, we learn through image, we learn through mentorship and apprenticeships and collaboration and modeling and all kinds of things, again, that have been subtracted from the repertoire of teachers over a long period of time. I bet you if you went to those one-room schoolhouses back in the uh, uh, 1800s, you would have seen a very different model for what teachers did with kids. You know. Right. Multi-age spaces, one-room schoolhouses, kids very actively engaged, using slates and, you know, what I call the first tablets. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that, well, I'll make a point, because a lot of people think that we really represent sort of a cutting edge of technology. Here's one of the things that Iris said to me over and over again, and you and I have kind of dialogued back in terms of, and you've written pretty passionately about the concept of personalized learning which can look like kids getting plugged into devices in you know, some people's interpretation of that. Ira has said over and over again, when people have really pushed on, shouldn't we be doing more online learning, kids at home, you know, kind of the, the model that, that somewhere around 2008 came out of um, uh, sort of Clayton Christensen's work. And at that point in time, I thought, you know, this guy's done the research. He says that by 2020, 50% of our kids in high school will be gone. They'll be all out there you know, plugged in and doing their own thing. And some of them are, you know, and in fact, there's a lot more today than there were then, but it's kind of moderated. That data hasn't changed much in a while. But here's what Ira said. He said, I don't want kids in isolation of their schools because I want to know that somebody's looking every kid in the eye every day and asking the question, are you okay? Checking that for every child that comes through our doors. 
I think about it. I sat, I started sitting down with high school kids and talking about that phenomenon. Here's what I heard from teens. Teens see school as a social learning space. They love learning with their peers and they love learning with a teacher who absolutely believes in the power of relationships in their classrooms, who knows them, whether it's 130 kids in a high school caseload or whether it's 22 in an elementary school. Kids see schools as a social space, almost a tribal-like space, where they get to come and be a part of a community. And they love adults who are great models for them of what it means to have compassion and empathy and care and to take an interest. And they will never sacrifice that for a device. But I can tell you this, I had a kid say to me, but Dr. Moran, if I'm in a classroom and all the teacher's gonna do is stand at the dominant teaching wall and show me PowerPoints for the whole class, I might as stay home, stay home and do the Khan Academy. After this short break, I'll be back with part two of my conversation with Pam Moran and Iris Sobel. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Modern Learners Podcast. If you're listening today, it's likely because you understand that we have a real need for change in our schools and that we owe it to our learners to think differently about what school is and what it can be. Modern Learners Community is the home for global educational leaders who are igniting the movement to fully reimagine the school experience for all learners. If you are someone who is in a position of educational leadership or who someday aspires to be, and you want to surround yourself with others doing this difficult and vital work, we invite you to join us in Modern Learners Community. I'm Lynn Hilt, the Community Manager of MLC, and our Learning Commons will help ensure you're using your professional learning time to the fullest. MLC offers carefully curated content to help you find signal among the noise, thought-provoking questions and discussions with inspiring community members who are serious about change, live events and access to the Modern Learners team, and a circle of critical friends who will help you reimagine the school experience for the learners in your schools. When you become a member of Modern Learners community, you will be challenged, you will be heard, you will question, you will gain clarity, and you will learn. Visit modernlearners.com slash mlcommunity and click subscribe now to request your invitation to MLC. After doing so, we'll be in touch about how you can join in our movement, and we are so confident that you will find incredible value in making MLC your preferred learning destination that we offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. Let's create a whole new experience of school together. So from our thousands of Facebook viewers right now, we're getting some questions about teaching and how you, how you bring teachers down that path to a more progressive stance in the classroom, right? And this is, this is a lot about what we try to talk about in our work too in Change School. And, and what I thought was interesting about you guys is that you do ground so much of your work in your competencies, in your vision. It's very clear the outcomes or, or at least the, the, the path forward, the goals that you have set up. And I, I, I wonder the extent to which you guys feel that, that grounding that change work in a, in a core belief system, in a value system, in a, you know, in a, this is what's the right thing to do for kids articulation of that. I mean, how important that is, but also how then do you help teachers begin to do that change work in classrooms? And I know, you know, Pam, I tell your story all the time about, and you talk about it in the book too, about getting to yes, right? And, and that the culture really says, 
if you have an idea, if you want to try something, we're going to do everything we can to get to yes, meaning go do it. You tell the, the story about the, you know, the treehouse um, seating in your cafeterias, which I just love that story. But um, how, how do you, how do you, how, what's your advice to people who are trying to move teacher practice to a more progressive space with a whole bunch of teachers who maybe don't feel empowered, they don't feel um, like they know really what that looks like, I mean, they care for kids. I, I believe that. I think most teachers really do have deep, a deep concern and care for kids, but they don't really know how to make that the work as opposed to the curriculum work. So, I mean, how do you start? Hang on, Pam. Let me just say one thing, Pam. And you know, it's always a struggle for me. You know, and you guys, I, I love interviewing you guys because you, you, you know, you have such. You're, you're always searching for things to say. You know, that's so. right. You know. <laughs> One of the things, because we haven't mentioned Chad, who's the third author before, but one of the things Chad said to me a long time ago, so I think this was 2012, when I first started working. Um, no, yeah, I think it was 2012 when I first started being in Albemarle County, like on an absolutely month-by-month -month basis. And, and he said what I... He said, Ira, what I like about what you do is you, you don't ever start off by blaming the teachers. He said, the great thing about the historical lens that, that you can bring and speaking about things like the Prussian model that we adopted in the 1850s is that you're saying to teachers, this isn't your fault because it's not their fault. Exactly. They are working in an awful, awful system that was designed to do everything we would despise right now. And the fact that we are succeeding as well as we do is a tribute to what our teachers do every day, because they are fighting a system that was literally designed first to fail 80% of the children. And secondly, you know, the important quote about the whole age, you know, grade by grade repetition, you know, model of education, what's called the Prussian model is that it was designed after the Napoleonic Wars to make sure that no German soldier would ever disobey an order again. And we know how that worked out for the world. So um, there, there's, there's an essential truth to the fact that teachers are working their butts off to do what they can for kids. And then we, then we can help them start to say, how do we move forward? And one of the things I noticed in my work in Michigan State, working with pre-service teachers is, and working with teachers all across the state on, on an accessibility project, was that the age of accountability has stripped away teachers' beliefs that they understand what their students are doing. I, I remember having this amazing Twitter argument with a teacher in British Columbia one night, five years ago, she said she was really mad because a, a girl had missed the day in class and her parents didn't want her to have to make up the test. And I said to the teacher, does she know the stuff? And the teacher said, oh, yeah. And I said, so, <laughs> right. you know, so now I'll give it back to Pam. <laughs> so, Pam, how do we help teachers? I mean, how do we, how do we give them entry points into that change that many of them feel uncomfortable with? Here's what I would say first off, that, that the, the failures that I've had across my career, and I've got a lot of years in as a teacher, administrator, um, central office administrator, elementary principal, middle school administrator, taught high school, taught middle school, 
I've, you know, I've, I'm one of the few people probably in the country um, that's really experienced the K-12 continuum and also taught at the college level. Um, and I was a parent, which was a real informing part of my life in terms of understanding education, is that my biggest failures have occurred when I underestimate the time that's needed to allow people, just like we allow and should allow kids developmentally to move when they're ready to make that next step, to understand the scaffolding that's really needed to support some people more than others, to really understand that, that some people are always going to be out over the horizon and some people are always going to be wanting to stay on the East Coast, and that we have to be as leaders responsive to those differences. And when we are not, when we get ahead, and there are times when I've gotten ahead of the pack in terms of my thinking, and I've gotten pulled back a little bit to the middle, um, that, that we've got to really just be constantly trying to sense where is a classroom of kids, a staff of teachers, a department of teachers, a grade level of teachers, a school, a school division, a school district, in order to really take the time you need. I'm really fortunate. I've had 13 years as a superintendent in the same place. That is highly unique in the United States. Yes. That's allowed me. Unfortunately, that's true. <laughs> it's really true because you, this kind of work doesn't happen overnight. It's not a recipe. Right. I love Margaret Wheatley and Deborah Fries's book, Walk Out, Walk On, where they say what you're really trying to scale across communities is not a specific program or a specific project. It's what's the big idea that importantly allows a different community with a different terror, different climate, different identity to take something that, that's a really powerful idea but make it their own. And that's why, you know, we've been very leery in Albemarle of trying to have um, a lot of duplicative, um, repetitive, um, uh, cookie cutter kinds of things across the system. We're very judicious in those things that we say are expectations. So we never, we went through the entire accountability movement and never adopted a model that many systems have used where every teacher was expected to be kind of in the same unit at the same time and doing a test at the end of the unit that looked like the test that everybody else was doing. We, we really said, let's let our teachers continue to have autonomy. And if we need to slide in and support somebody up, we can do that. But what we're not going to do is to create this sort of assembly line model right. that was embraced. And our schools did, I just found out today that niche rankings are out and the niche rankings are uh, ones that we kind of pay attention to because they're fairly holistic um, with both feedback from communities as well as uh, they look at, you know, assessment data and so forth and so on. And Albemarle County is uh, and has been third in the, in the state in terms of uh, its niche ranking and, and the big guns that, you know, we always are competing with the Northern Virginia big guns and, you know, we're, we're ahead of Fairfax now in mm -hmm. that, you know, and, and so, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a person that's necessarily stuck on benchmarking. I want to know how do we look against what we would consider to be a benchmarking um, sort of a group of, of other systems. But what I want to focus on more is at the formative level, how are we different? And what are we giving our kids that can't be captured in any way, shape, or form in some sort of a, you know, million-celled database? Right. And that's where you start to look at all the things that kids do and ask those tough questions. And I got to tell you, 
we're not there yet with equity. You know, if, well, if you look at, if you look at, let's say an orchestra and that orchestra looks like it does not represent the diversity of a school, you got to ask yourself the question, why not? Mm-hmm. Why are the middle-class kids continuing to get the enriched experiences that we would really want to happen? So we built a, we built an initiative, uh, uh, started building it a couple years ago, one about social emotional learning, how to get much deeper into that. I had kids, this is one of my favorite stories of the year. I had a group of kids that went to an institute at UVA last summer in which they learned what it takes to become a political act- activist. They decided that one of the most critical areas that's a, a real gap in education in our system and elsewhere is mental health support and services. They came and said to me, we want to build an initiative for the budget. And I said, you got to do your research. Bring me your research. They brought that to us in central office. We put their initiative into the superintendent's funding request. This came from kids from our high schools. That initiative moved forward and it was eventually passed into the budget for this next year, not my budget, but the uh, current superintendent's budget. Those kids didn't stop that there. They figured out how to get themselves into the Virginia General Assembly and they went up there and they made a pitch that mental health focus should be in the curriculum for the state of Virginia for kids. That got passed. Virginia and New York are now two states in the union that actually have a commitment to that. I saw one of the kids <coughs> as he was graduating. I said, so what are you going to do next? He said, we're not stopping with this because we're not going to stop until we see this as something that's available and supportive of kids everywhere. And all I could think about is where do kids get to get, get to see their work? See, we tell kids their voice is important, but too often those kids would show up in somebody's office and would be told, well, not really. You know, we can't do that. Right. You know, what is it that we do that sends that message that if somebody has something that is consistent with the vision, consistent with the mission, and it is something that they believe is going to make, maybe it's an, in the invention bucket, something we've never tried before. Maybe it's something they want to tweak that's more innovative, but it's not new. How do we make that a part of our strategic package over time so that people start to see, you know what, we do have influence. When people feel disempowered, and I can tell you, you know, I can probably give you some, some folks that would say that they feel that at times in Albemarle or have, um, but the reality is we have to change, you know, everybody talks about mindset. We have to change the way we think about power, about shifting power to kids, shifting power to adults. We have to think about how do we um, support up, flattening the hierarchy so that people see themselves as capable of being a part of the leadership team, whether you're five years old or almost ready to retire. That's what I think you do is you have to start with your values and beliefs about who's in charge, whose voice matters. Right. Then you start to build the structures that allow things to move. And over time, you start to get things go viral. And if I, you know, I just want to add one little addition to that, you know, because we do believe that the way teachers learn best is the way kids learn best, which is through immersive experiences, whether it's bringing them to the World Maker Fair in New York and me showing them how retail stores communicate. Um, in addition to that, or whether we invite people to our Coder Dojo, which is a K-12 um, 
peer-to-peer -peer learning event every summer and have them just watch this process. Uh, but, you know, to me, the uh, essential words are courage and trust. And I think back to... Yep. Two Looks years like ago, we had a group of um, superintendents who were visiting what we call our multi-age pavilion. It's at a highly at-risk, uh, diverse elementary school. It's a space with 130 kids, K through five, with six teachers. Um, and these superintendents are staring there, and they really had no idea what they were even seeing. It takes about 15 minutes to a half hour for a traditional educator to even get their bearings in that space to understand what's happening and, and what they're seeing. But there were these four kids and they were walking out the door to go outside. Um, and they ranged from about fifth to second grade. And one of the superintendents said to one of the teachers, um, really one of our greatest um, you know, teachers and said, do you know where they're going? And he said, no, but I'm pretty sure they do. <laughs> and to me, that is the metaphor go, right? of what school needs to be. There you go. So, you know, it's been a quick hour and I, I, I don't want to go too far over, um, you know, the hour or maybe a couple minutes in, but I, I want to end up with a couple of quotes that I thought were really interesting. And then just to get you guys to answer um, one last question. I mean, I, the urgency of this work, I think, is pretty apparent. I mean, at least to the people, at least to many of us in education who are looking at kids and seeing their disengagement and then looking at the world and seeing the disconnect between what happens in classrooms and what happens in the real world. I, I think there's a really compelling case to be made, and I think you guys do a great job of making that case in the book. Um, but it's a huge, huge boulder to be pushing up the hill when, when you start to think about how much time it takes, how much energy, how many conversations you have to have, you know, what are the starting points, all the barriers, all the, all the things that are, that are telling you why not and, and what are making it difficult. Um, and you guys realize all of those things. I don't think you're obviously ignorant of, of how difficult this work is, and I'm, I'm sure you found it difficult as you went through it. Um, but you have a couple quotes in the book where you say, you know, tinkering isn't going to cut it. And you say incremental shifts in practice are not the focus of our work. Um, and I, I think that there's an interesting debate when it comes to change in schools between big, hairy, transformative acts and incremental changes that scale and grow over time. So I guess my last question for you guys is, you know, to educational leaders or teachers or anyone involved in education, I mean, what is the, and I think you said somewhere in the book too, you say something like change something, right? Uh -huh. Change something. When, when you're done with this presentation, when you're done listening to this podcast, when you're done reading the book, change something, right? So what, what's your advice to people who still struggle with finding something to change that they think is, you know, is, is possible and that they think will advance them down that path toward maybe creating a more progressive experience of learning for kids in schools? Well, you know, I think we describe sort of a tent, we try to describe a little bit of tension in the book between doing something which you have to do. You have to prove to yourself that you can change something. Um, so many teachers, so many administrators, so many parents feel so unempowered 
that they don't feel exactly. they can do anything. Yeah. So even if it's the smallest thing, just go right now and do something that's, that's different. But the other end of the spectrum is what we call zero-based thinking, which is, you know, to me is at, at the end of the day, your North Star has to be if we could, had never seen school and could imagine how we'd want to bring children from the age of four to the age of 18, what would we do? We surely wouldn't do anything we're doing right now. You know, I mean, that, that, <laughs> that's the Bell that's, Labs experience. Right. That's right. One, one of the key things. And it, so you have to keep that in your head. The problem with incremental change is, is people think, okay, I changed the schedule and, you know, it didn't have a big effect. Well, you have to keep changing. So what I learned very early on is that in my life, because I had a mother who was a, a sort of radical, open classroom, multi-age elementary teacher. I went to a, you know, a, a completely radical high school. Shocked to hear that, Ira. Seriously, really shocked about that. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> led by a man named Alan Shapiro, who, whose poetry opens the book because because um and who I, you I, remember I, sitting around a table with uh neil postman and uh uh weingartner charlie, charlie weingartner yeah. you know designing this school um the you know the thing is that it is the change of everything that will drive your big success because you know it, it's it's one of the fundamental problems of the, the modernist research model that we use, that people say, well, you got to isolate, you know, this single change. Well, if you isolate this single change, and I've done a lot of research in education, the only single thing that really changes student achievement is letting kids eat and drink whenever they want all day, and as much as they want all day. That's, that's the only thing that actually you can isolate that has an impact you know, really on, on achievement. And so what you have to do is think, okay, how do I move in, in incremental steps towards something completely different? And I think we try to describe that. It's, so it's not saying, you know, yeah, we'd all like to completely reinvent a new school every day for every kid. That's not going to happen. So how do you get there? Well, and, and I would just add that um, one of the things I don't underestimate is that kids do choose, I would use the word choice right up front when we started talking, that, you know, we, we walked into a teacher's class one, one day right after uh, Thanksgiving, and in the, the kids were kind of doing something around what had happened over Thanksgiving that was interesting to them. And there were kids in there using a big dictionary I don't know why, to write on paper in sort of one of those marble journals. There were kids that were using iPads and were drawing and, you know, doing some things. There were kids that were down on the floor uh, putting together um, some sort of a storyboard. Everywhere you looked in the room, kids were, some kids working collaboratively, some kids working individually, some kids using more traditional tools, some kids using more contemporary tools. What was really critical is that the kids were all engaged, totally. You had to stop and force a kid to talk to you to get them to disengage because they were working from choice. 
that is as true in a high school class when kids are given choice versus getting assigned a project to do as it is in a, a class of third graders. I had a teacher one time who we ended a, a workshop and she said, I don't know what to do tomorrow. And I said, tell me what something that, that goes on in your class that worries you. And she talked about that she had discipline problems and that kids wouldn't listen and you know, they would, they'd stop working and stuff. And I said, so tell me what your classroom looks like. And she described it. Ira, I think you probably remember this story. And we said, have you ever just let kids stand up or sit on the floor to do their work, even if it's listening to you? And she said, no. And we said, well, you know, consider that if you're looking for something to do. She wrote an email to us afterwards and basically said that she had a kid that pretty much every single day was out of that class by simply allowing that kid to stand at his desk and do whatever it was she was asking the class to do. She said, he didn't get, he didn't leave the class. She was the first time. Something as simple as letting a kid stand up. It doesn't cost you a dime to do that. But kids don't all want to be sitting in a plastic chair that's in, uncomfortable for six hours a day. They need to orient in space differently. So it can be that simple. And you know what? What we find is when somebody does that and they hit a little bit of a success with it, then they're willing to take the next risk. And then maybe they'll take the next risk. The other one is a more radical version of that is a teacher. I walked into his class at the beginning of the school year. It was the first week of school. And every single thing in his room was dumped in the middle of the floor, in the middle of the room, piled up marker boxes and books and, you know, microscopes and rocks and desks were piled on top of each other. I said, what is going on? He said, I told the kids that I want them to figure out how to rearrange the room that they need. And they did. And I, when I saw him a couple months later, I said, so tell me, how's it work? He said, I don't know where anything is, but they do. There you go. Well, listen, you guys, I just want to tell you again, um, I just found that book amazing and powerful. Uh, I think that the most powerful part for me, and, it, and again, it kind of relates to the work that we're trying to do, is that you, you're just very clear on what you believe. You're very clear on your progressive vision and you own it. And I think that the competencies and all those other kinds of values and outcomes that you've articulated for your district, whether everyone's doing them or not, you know, probably is a different story. And, and some people take more time than others to get to those things, but they're there and they're clear and, and they're coherent. And, you know, uh, our friend Gary Steger has a great line where he says, where schools get in trouble is when they don't know what they believe, they don't articulate what they believe, and then they don't live what they believe. And, and, and I just got that sense through reading Timeless Learning that you guys know all three of those things. And, well, and that's what grounds your work. And for me, that's the message to people more than anything else. You have to start there. You have to start with what you truly believe about who kids are. And you have to ask those questions about what do you want them to be able to do in your classrooms? What do you believe about how they learn? How can you create those conditions? And not just for kids, obviously, but for teachers as well, right? Because it's not just a learning culture for kids in schools. Teachers have to feel like they're empowered to learn and do all that work as well. So really appreciate you writing the Love book, spend, spending some time. And yeah. for those of you on Facebook, thanks so much for watching. We actually had about 50 people, I think, on Facebook. Which oh is thank you, Will. Cool. I'll hold that up the awesome. book. There you go. There's the book. I was holding up for those there of you, you still on Facebook book. so you can yeah. see it. I think the, the print version is out next week. The Kindle yeah. version is already out right wow. now. 
Um, if you want a little bit of a review, if you're still listening on the podcast, head on over to modernlearners.com slash blog and you'll see it's the last blog post. But um, sincerely, thanks so much for spending time. Thanks yeah, for well, and and I will just say, just if I can have the last word, which you, you know, can't Pam, go for it. <laughs> but but I always <laughs> I always want to just make sure that that one of the things that's very clear, and I say this in every retweet, that this work is not my work, it's not Ira's work, it's not Chad's work, it's not anyone teachers or anyone's central office or the current superintendent's work. Right. It really represents a long narrative going back three superintendents now of people that have really kept that fire burning and kept this work evolving and moving forward. So it really represents a lot of different stories that construct that narrative. And I just always am thankful. I've been able to work with educators willing to take some risk. So, and Will, your words mean the world to me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Will. Appreciate it, you guys, and sincere best wishes in the book. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again at some point down the road. Thanks Absolutely. again. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was fun. It was hey, fun. Can we talk? Yeah, we can talk. We can talk. I, wow. I took that. We're we're off of Facebook, and and okay. I'll just I'll stop yeah. the re, I'll stop the recording. I think I'll try to. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, that would be, that's what, you know, we don't want to be, we don't want to be the, uh, the next Ronald Reagan.